Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. We started talking about this the, the two weeks ago, and one of the things that we were talking about, we looked at the really the first six verses, and we talked about how Paul was utilizing the law and how we were married to the law, and we talked about how you know we were married, but then the only way to get away from that marriage is for someone to die, and the law is perfectly healthy and it can't die. It's perfectly good, perf- perfectly healthy, and it can't die. And so something else, somebody else has to die. And Paul uses the illustration. It's, it, it breaks down very easily, obviously, because he says, if you die, then you're no longer bound to your husband, which is the law, and you're no longer under the law. Uh, but then you can, you're free to get married to someone else. Now, that's, see, that's where it breaks down, because if you're dead, you can't really get married to somebody else. Except, spiritually, when we die to ourselves... We can become born again. It's one of those things that Jesus talked about. You know, that spiritual, in, in the spiritual economy of heaven is that God says, you, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, which Nicodemus didn't understand. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. How can I as an adult go back and be born again? I, I, I can't fit. It's not going to work. And Jesus goes, man, what I'm talking about is spiritual, man. You're talking physical. I'm talking spiritual. And so Jesus is talking about a physical rebirth. Paul is talking about a spiritual death and a rebirth in Christ. But then he goes on and he's talking about the law. The law, the law, the law. And there's something here today that I wanted to share because I know that I didn't get to it last time. And it's something that I think is so imperative for us to know as Christians because if we look at the whole of the Bible... And I think I said this when I first opened up our introduction into the book of Romans. Probably the most valuable book, if you will, not that there's any other book that's more valuable than the other, but, uh, than another, but theologically, probably one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable book. If there was a, a, a binder that would hold all of Scripture together, and it was just one book that could hold that binder together, taking the Old Testament and the New Testament, matching them together, and talking about the gift that God has given in His Son, it would be in the book of Romans. It would be in the letter to the book of Romans, or to the people in Romans, in, in Rome. The Romans who were Christians in Rome, which Paul had never visited. We've heard that before. We understand that. But if the book of Romans is really, from beginning to end, the most concise book that tells the whole of the story. And it's so valuable. If you look at that book as being the most valuable, one of the most valuable books in all of Scripture, well then, then when you get to seeing that there's 16 chapters in Romans, right in the center of the book are two of the most important chapters of all of, of, of all of the book of Romans, and that would be chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so what we're going through, chapter 7 and chapter 8, they're incredibly important for us to understand as, as believers. They're incredibly important for us to understand if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ. You have to understand these things. These things are really, really, really important. These things are are. Lessons that I'm sorry to say that are not necessarily preached from pulpits today that should be preached on almost a week-by-week basis. Paul talks about the law. He talks about how the law is and how the law will confine us under sin. How the law is there to uh, magnify sin. You see, sin is magnified by knowing the law. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So that the sin might increase. Now, what is that all about? The law was added that the trespass might increase. He also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, he says the strength of sin is the law. What does that mean? What are we talking about there? It means that the law reveals what sin is. The law reveals sin in such a way that it is so undeniably obvious that everyone falls short. 
everyone. The law reveals or it makes known to us that we all struggle in one form or maybe in many forms of sin. You see, sin is present in all of us. We all have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, we may come down pretty hard on Adam and Eve uh, there in the Garden of Eden when they ate of the forbidden fruit. But you know what? We do this kind of stuff all the time, don't we? We all do that. Oh, well, Pastor Don, I've never been in the garden where God said specifically don't eat of that fruit. Oh? There's a lot of things that just happened this morning. There's probably something in your life that happened this morning that, that you know the Lord has forbidden you to do. Whether it be taking too long on a thought to actually engaging in some sort of a sinful activity. You know it's wrong. You know that the Lord is displeased with that. He doesn't want you to do that. And yet, you did it anyways. May I rename you Adam or Eve? You're an Adam or you're an Eve. Listen to what St. Augustine wrote in his writings called Confessions. By the way, not a book that most of us would like to write. Confessions about our life. Putting pen and ink to paper to establish a record of all of our wrongs. You know, whether they be big or whether they be strong or or, or small. Here's the thing that St. Augustine writes. He writes this. There was a pear tree near our vineyard. Laden with fruit, one stormy night we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit, they were nice pears. But it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had had plenty better at home, he says. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have maimed, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Now, not a lot has changed in the last 1,500 years since he wrote this. What goes through your mind when you see a sign that says, wet paint? What goes through your mind? What if I were to say, I have something in this box to my left. It's been there through worship. It was so bad that Kevin actually came and took it and brought it over to me and said, this probably shouldn't be up here for worship. I said, no, it needs to be there for worship. He's going, you're weird. I go, yes, I am. Here's the thing. Here's a box over here. I don't want any of you in that box today. I don't want you to look in the box. I don't want you to see what's in the box. It might change your life. Don't do it. We go on. (laughs) What's your mind going to be thinking for the rest of this service? What's in that box? box? What is in that box? I am not going to tell you. I'm going to find out which one of you guys opened the box. I'm just joking. But here's the thing. Listen, if you were to be left alone in this building by yourself long enough, Where would your attention be drawn to? That box, right? Whether you ever open that box or not, given enough time, you probably would open the box to see what I forbid you to see in that box, right? Unless, of course, you were Chuck Noland. Who knows who Chuck Noland is? Anyone? You know who Chuck Noland is. A lot of you do. Tom Hanks' character in the Castaway movie was named Chuck Noland. He was a Federal Express executive. He, re, executive. he was the only survivor of a Federal Express plane that crashed on its way to Malaysia and, it, and he washed up on a deserted island. But there was one box 
if you ever watched the movie, there was one box that he never opened. He never opened. He vowed to keep the one surviving package unopened in order to one day deliver that package personally upon his rescue from the island. Four years later, he, he makes a raft. He makes his way out to the shipping lanes of the cargo ships while he loses his best friend, Wilson. Some of you would remember who Wilson is. That was his volleyball that he drew a face on that he frequently argued with. You remember? Wilson is lost at sea, his best friend. A few days later, Nolan, he's passed out. He's, he's unconscious. He's rescued by a cargo ship. And he's brought back to the States, and eventually he takes the unopened package to Canadian, Texas, to the sender, who wasn't there. And then he walks away, and he goes to a crossroads in his life, and the movie ends, basically. Now, you know there's a never-before ending to that movie? It has never been seen before. Well, maybe you might have seen it. Here's the ending to that movie. There's that one box. He never knew what was inside. I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. And I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. That's very admirable. Thank you. Hey, well, by the way, what's in the package? Uh, nothing really. Just a satellite phone, GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. Just silly stuff. Thank you again. You keep up the good work. Maybe his curiosity should have gotten the best of him and he should have opened the box. Here's the thing. The things that we're forbidden to do, we just want to do it. It's just, there is something in our flesh that craves to break the mold and not adhere to the rules it's something that we as parents have to deal with with our kids all the time what's weird is that we have to deal with that with our kids while still remembering how our parents dealt with us in some instances thanking God that our kids were nothing like us purpose of the law of God. It's to show us that we don't measure up. We don't measure up to the righteousness that is required to have peace with God and be allowed into heaven. Sin is so tempting. Sin, sin applies to our flesh. It, 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 it entices our flesh. It entices us in such a way. And, and here's the thing. Some are better at not breaking the law than others. Or some are better at not falling into sin or jumping into sin as, a, as others. There are some that, I mean, you know, you have friends in your life and you have, maybe it's you, you know. Uh, if something bad is going to happen and someone's going to slip and fall, whether you're it or, or you actually know somebody that it would be. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. You know, something happens and something happens to somebody and they've done something stupid and, and maybe their picture is in the newspaper. You hear it from a friend, hey, this happened to him, and you go, well, you know what, that just really doesn't surprise me. I would never do that. And, and so we kind of have this little self-righteousness in there because we think that, you know, we're better than that person or we think that we don't struggle with the things that that person struggles with when in all actuality we all struggle with different things. Some are more observant than others and, and others are less observant. But the fact remains we all, we all struggle. The purpose of the law of God was to show us that we don't measure up to the righteousness that is required to have peace with God and then be allowed into his heaven. Here's the thing, gang. Listen. Heaven is not a part of our Constitution in the United States of America. However weak it becomes, and it is becoming weak. Heaven is not simply a future right of yours or mine because we simply were born. Heaven is not our future home because God loves mankind and everyone is going to go there. There are people that think that way. 
everyone will go to heaven. An ever-increasing thought of people, especially in the United States, is one of acceptance and tolerance. And we begin to apply that acceptance and tolerance to God and say, listen, you, 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 you tolerate and you accept all things. If someone struggles in sin, accept them. If someone, you know, and I'm not saying that we shun them. I'm not saying that. I'm saying as a, as a church, as a person, as a believer that believes in Christ, we have hope in Christ. We don't have to fall into those things. The enemy is coming to throw sweet fruit out there in front of people and people are diving into the fruit and they're sinking their teeth into the fruit that is causing them to one day go to hell. And God's going, no, it's for this reason that I sent my son Jesus Christ so that you don't have to have a, a future that is destined for hell. I came that you might have life, but the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Jesus is saying. And somewhere along the line, we have gotten that backwards to where all of a sudden what the thief has come to give us, we have begun to accept it and tolerate it and say, well, you know what, that's okay. God's okay with that. No, God's not okay with it. If it's not okay with him in his word it's not okay with him today the lord the the bible tells us that i am the lord god i change not so god doesn't change god's word is god's word and whether or not we as a people come together as a populace and say hey we're going to begin to accept this sinful behavior here's the thing it doesn't matter we're simply but one little speck of a generation in a history of, of people that have tried their hardest to try to overcome the Lord, to try to overcome God's ways. See, it goes all the way back to the, even, the, 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 the flood. You remember the flood? Noah, don't watch the movie. I understand. I didn't even watch the movie. I understand the movie was just trash with Russell Crowe. It wasn't biblically accurate. I mean, it might have been dynamic, you know, with all the special effects and everything. But as far as biblical accuracy, it wasn't there. That's what I understand. I don't know. But here's the thing. When we look at that, God destroyed the people off the face of the earth, except for one family, and that was Noah's family. Why? It's because every wicked imagination in the heart of man was becoming open. They began to just do anything and everything that they wanted to do. And they began to discard God. Begin to tolerate. They began to accept what sin was. They began to live as though there weren't a God or that God would accept and tolerate every bit of sin that they did. And God says, you know what? The wickedness of man has come up to me and I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth. And, and so he sends a flood and it takes out the whole of the world. Except for Noah. And actually, he kind of makes a fool out of Noah in the process, doesn't he? Hey, build a boat. How come? I live in the middle of a field. I know, build a boat. Okay. Why? Because it's going to rain. Lord, what's rain? It had never rained before on the earth. Oh, that's when water comes out of the sky. Is it water heavier than air? Yeah. And pray tell me, how does heavy water come from lighter air? I, I, don't, I don't understand. Trust me, it's coming. Just build the ark. At your word, Lord, I'll build the ark. Noah, what are you building out there in your field? I'm building a boat. Why? It's going to rain. What's rain? Water. Coming from the sky. Hey, Noah, isn't water heavier than air? Yeah. How's water going to come out of the sky? You're a fool. And and they mocked him. And Noah, he carried on and he built the ark, didn't he? And he survived. The rest of the world's population, they perished. Give it a couple of generations and all of a sudden we have a lot of people back on the face of the earth again after Noah has landed with his, with his ark and what have you and the people have repopulated the face of the earth. What do the people say? The people all come together. They all have one language together. There's only one language on the face of the earth at that time. They all come together and they say, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to build a tower that reaches into heaven and we're going to take pitch 
and we're going to use pitch to build it. Now, this may have been lost on a lot of you, but here's the thing. Understand this. After the big last judgment from God, all of the flood upon the face of the earth to wipe out mankind because of the sinfulness that was here. The people came together and said, you know what? We're tired of doing it God's way. We want to continue to live the way we want to do. But here's the only way we're going to be able to do it. He flooded us out last time. So here's what we'll do. Let's build a tower that's higher than the flood can come. And let's use pitch. You know what pitch is? Pitch is tar. Pitch is tar. So let's waterproof the tower so that water can't seep in and we can actually outsmart God. God to the point, he just goes, you know what? Listen, they're conspiring to do something. They're putting their minds together to try to become like us. Let's go down and confound their language. We'll just confuse their language. The Tower of Babel. Babel literally means unintelligible speech. speech. Blah, 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 blah. You know? And they all kind of went, hey, what's going on? Hey, Frank, pass me up that stone. Okay? <laughs> que pasa? What are you saying, Frank? Okay? I, those are the only kind of words I know in Spanish. But here's the thing. I don't know Chinese. I don't know Russian, you know. Or whatever, you know. Hey, you know. Here's the thing. And they start speaking all these different languages. And people are going, hey, is everybody nuts or is it just me? You know, and they start wondering out loud. And pretty soon you hear yourself talking. And you hear somebody else talking in the same language that you have. And you go, hey, hey, hey. You can understand me. I know. This is crazy. This is nuts. And you kind of start assembling yourself together with the people that understand your own language. And off you go and off they go and everybody separates into their own place and God scattered them away from the tower. Why? Because they wanted to do something that was beyond God. And that's the whole purpose. Here's the thing. We don't have a right to put words into God's word. We don't have a right to change the mind of God. God has his, he has this written for you and I. 66 love letters to you and I that he's written to us in order to tell us Hey, you want to get to me? This is how you do it. I love you. But I'm also a righteous judge. You wouldn't like me if I wasn't a righteous judge. If I wasn't a righteous judge, you'd all be done right now. Toast. Obliterated. But I'm a righteous judge and I am bound by my word. I will honor my word even above my name. Here's the thing. God will honor his word. No matter if all of the population in our country or even all over the world's population says, hey, sin is no longer sin. We all just accept it. And God does too because God loves us. Yeah, God loves you, but he doesn't love your sin. He doesn't love my sin. There was a person I was reading just as I was doing my study for this, you know, and you've, you've, you know people like this. Somebody was, came to their door to witness to them and, and this person said, I explained that any type of hell, be it in, on earth or in dirt, is not acceptable to me. That any God worth believing in would not harm his creations just for not believing. Welcome to the world of you. You've created your own gospel. You've discarded what the word of God says. You've just discarded it and you're living according to you. Now, you didn't create the earth. And really, it doesn't matter what you think. You could be falling off, as I said a while back. You could be falling off, you know, the Empire State Building. And try to convince everybody, every floor, you're coming down. I'm not falling. I'm not falling. I'm not falling. But there's coming a time when you're going to realize, oh, how wrong you were. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be horrible. Here's the thing. We can change the word to make it more palatable to us. But we are denying the creator in the process. It's the purpose of the law. The law is there to, to, to show you and to show me what sin is. 
Heaven is not some future place guaranteed to anyone. In fact, heaven is an impossible future destination for anyone. This is what Paul is attempting to get through the thick skulls of all of mankind. Heaven is out of reach for all men. Everyone, that means you, that means me, that even means the nicest person you've ever met in your life. And this is why I have such a problem with churches like Joel Olstein's church in Houston, the largest church in America. Why is it the largest church in America? Because it's tickling the ears of people that don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that it's wrong. You're not explaining you're not telling you're not sharing the full gospel there are people that are going to hell and you are just making them happy as they go that way and here's the thing i pity that man standing before god for taking out of the word of god in order to live your best life now Jesus just wants us to be happy. I know what Kevin just, not last time, but the time before, he showed you the Victoria Olstein video. I mean, what? That's just crazy. It's the largest church in America. And people are clamoring for that guy. Why? Because it makes me feel good. I go out feeling nice. I feel feeling, go out feeling good. Here's the thing. How many people walked away from Jesus feeling super good all the time? I, I read in the Bible that sometimes Jesus said some pretty hard things that people are going, hey, dude, that's crazy. I'm out of here. The food was good, but I'm gone. I'm out. God's word sometimes hard. It's hard sometimes. Joel Osteen refuses to speak about the desperately awful condition of mankind, of you and I. We, everyone, that means everyone, we are completely and totally unfit for heaven. We are lost. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We are in a terrible place with a terrible future. We are all born in sin and we are all headed for hell at the end of our lives and there is no escaping it. Until you realize that, until a person understands their condition, a future home in hell with no chance of escape, they will never truly understand nor appreciate what extent God has gone to to secure their rescue. If you don't know that you're headed for hell, you aren't going to appreciate the sacrifice that this cross resembles speaks of you're not going to understand it our faith is going to be something like we put on like a coat we sometimes put it on or we sometimes leave it in a closet we put it on when it when it's appropriate or we put it on when when it's convenient for us it's not something that we say here's the thing it's a parachute that i'm going to have on me and strapped on to me at all times let me ask you something you're up in an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an airplane. And the pilot says, Now, I have a parachute for you. This parachute is there. And I know it's a little uncomfortable, but we've provided a parachute for you. If you'd like, you can put the parachute on. It, it doesn't make the ride super comfortable, but you know what? It'll save your life in case there's a problem. Um. Now, you have to buckle it on. There's like a six-point harness, and you buckle it on. Uh, but I would strongly advise you to do this. Now, you might go, I'm not going to put that thing on. I mean, airplanes hardly ever crash. I'm not going to put it on. I want the comfort of the ride. But then the flight attendant says, Now, the engine on this airplane has quit on us like five times in the last week. Now, Somewhere along the lines, the mechanic said, one of these times we're not going to be able to start it in the air ever again. Um, who wants a parachute? You know, all of a sudden, the inconvenience and the di discomfort of having that parachute on doesn't really matter anymore. Here's what it is. I'm going to put myself in that parachute, and I'm going to hold on for life as Don held on to the Falcon's Fury chair. I'm going to hold on for dear life because this is my rescue. This is my salvation. 
It's not just the convenience that I put on when I want to or when I don't want to put on. Here it is. My life depends upon my relationship with Christ. He is my parachute. And every single day I'm going out in an unworthy airplane. The airplane can crash at any moment. Let me put the parachute on. Let's put the parachute on, guys. That's why the law was given. It was to magnify sin, to reveal to you and to me that we are desperately lost, that we are desperately hopeless, that we are desperately helpless and in desperate need of someone worthy enough to step up to the plate and rescue us. You see, until the law was given to mankind, there were those who would feel that because they acted better than someone else or were nicer to everyone than anyone else or they were more religious than anyone else, etc., that God would look over any of their little small issues because compared to everyone else, they were far and away better than any of their peers. And so God puts forth a law and he says, Here's a, here it is. Here's a standard. Do you measure up to this standard? Well, a whole lot better than others. I'm saying if you live by the law, you'll die by the law. You're going to be judged by this law. Oh, well, but I live a whole lot better than everybody else. I don't care. This is my standard to get into heaven. You want to know how to get into heaven? Here it is. Right here. Do these things. Okay, I'll I'll do those things. You find out really quick. 1.2 nanoseconds. You can't do it. You just can't do it. The law is, is, is really impossible to live. You can't do it. Some people think that God would grant them heaven because their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. And many still even feel this way today. But here's the thing. Look at what Paul says in reference to this. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, who is going to read that for me? Somebody read it. Jeremy. The word covet is the literal, it literally in the Greek is epithmia, epithmia, which literally means lust. This this is the definition, definition, desire, craving, longing, desire for that which is forbidden, lust. Guys, lust doesn't always, and coveting, it doesn't always just have to be of a sexual nature. It can manifest itself in many forms. For you, lust may be in the fact of a sec, in the fact be of the sexual nature, pornography or mindful fantasies or wondering eyes and heart, whatever that may be. But for someone else, like the Apostle Paul, not to say that he didn't have a wondering eye or that he didn't struggle with these other things. I don't know how you know, big pornography was back in that day, but, but, you know, we didn't have the access probably back in that day that we have today. Right. But here's the thing. I'm not to say that Paul didn't have that wondering eye, but for him, it may have been lusting for power or prestige or position. You remember Paul was just a religious, religious dynamo. He wanted power. He wanted, he wanted everything that God had, but he was just wanting to get it in a hurry. He wanted to excel above everyone. And probably those that were above him, he probably looked at him and said, what an idiot. I could do so much better. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you're at work and you sit there and go, I am, I am subservient to my manager who is an absolute idiot. They don't even know how to run this show. I do. I should be in that manager position. Man, I wouldn't put up with what they put up. I wouldn't do what they do. I would, I would. And, and you, you, you lust after that person's, person's position. That, that's Paul. That's what Paul's saying. Paul, Paul he's, he's sitting here. Um, Paul says, I, you know, I wouldn't even have known what sin is unless the law would have said, thou shalt not covet. That, don't lust. So how does Paul develop this point so that you and I and anyone else who would read this chapter could understand the extremely important significance of it? And we're going to read what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Somebody else. I need somebody else reading 8 and 9. Someone. Yes, Rick. Sin revived 
Okay, wait a minute. What did that just say right there? It said, sin taking opportunity by the commandment. What did it do? What did it do, Rick? You read it. It, it produced all manner of evil. Someone else. For apart from the law, sin was dead, right? If the law wasn't there, he, he's like, well, sin was dead to me when the law, when I didn't understand the law. I didn't understand things were sinful until I saw the law. In fact, he goes, shoot, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, when the law came, sin revived and I died. He's going, man, before I was responsible for understanding what the law said, before I even knew that, I was cool, man. But all of a sudden, when all of a sudden I see God's word say it, now I'm responsible for that. How many of you have ever struggled with that? Man, you used to do things and it used to be cool. used to be good. Totally good. But all of a sudden, you see something in the Word and you go, hey, wait a minute, that's what I'm doing and what I see my freedom in and I'm doing and I haven't really had any conviction on it. All of a sudden, I'm seeing that the Lord is showing me here that that's not something that I should be doing. Let me read that again. I mean, are you really saying I shouldn't be doing that, Lord? That's really what the Lord's saying. Now free do you continue to do those things in your life? Now all of a sudden it just it brought death to you. You're going, oh man, what I used to do, I, I with no guilty conscience. Now I do it and I have a guilty conscience. You see where this is going? Is that just me or has that ever happened to any of you guys? It's happened to me. Yeah. Verse 10. The commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. God says, you want to get to heaven? Yes! Here's the Ten Commandments. Bring life! Man, I want to go to heaven! I want to go to heaven! Now show. Okay, alright, yep. Uh, da, 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 da. Paul's going, man, I'm, I'm at number nine. I'm doing good. Thou shalt not covet. Da! Man, I got through all of them except for number ten. Number ten is killing me. Lord, why? If you wouldn't have put that in there, I would have been good. He says, I wouldn't have known sin unless the law wouldn't have said in the tenth one, thou shalt not covet it. And I do that. The law, which was to show me how to get to heaven, all of a sudden what it did is it brought death. It showed me that I fail. And I'm utterly helpless to overcome this. I can't do it. How many of you have completely and totally been able to overcome every sin in your life? I'm going to say that not a lot of hands would raise in this room. And, 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 and if your hand raised, we would forgive you. Here's the thing. We are all sinners. We're all sinners. He said, you know, God gave forth a law, which was, which was to say, hey, this is what's going to bring you life. But I found that it brought death. For sin taken occasion in me, verse 11, by the commandment, it deceived me and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it's just and it's good. What God gave isn't a bad thing. He gave it. It was good. The problem is not God and not God's law. The problem is who? Are you with me here? Who is the problem? It's not the law. It's not God. Those things are just. Those things are good. What's the problem here? Anyone? Me. We are. You see where Paul's doing? You see how he's doing this? He says, Has then what has become good become death to me? No. The law hasn't become death to me. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin 
through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Here's the thing. The law sits there and you might justify in your head why you sin. But then the law comes in and it says, yeah, you shouldn't do that at all. Now it confines you under sin. And where you thought you could find some righteousness, where you thought you found a little wiggle room, all of a sudden the law comes in and says, nope, you have no wiggle room here. You have no wiggle room here. He says in verse 14, we all know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. The word carnal means fleshly. And you know how I always remember that word? When I see the Hormel uh, chili beans at, at the grocery store, it says Hormel, chili con carne with meat. I always, I always know, that's how I've always said carnal carne. That's where we get the word carnal from, carne. It, so every time I look at Hormel, Hormel, chili with flesh i go i don't eat it i don't eat it i don't eat it chili con beans okay i'll do that chili con tacos i'll do that you know whatever but hey not chili con carne chili con flesh no not me sold under sin he says in verse 15 for what i'm doing and i want you to hear paul I want you to hear the agony in paul this is the apostle paul we're talking about here okay probably the most the greatest evangelist of all time, the greatest teacher of all time, the greatest uh, Christian of all time. Okay, this is Paul. And so when you sit there and you look at a pastor, you look at somebody that's a little bit, you, you look at them and you look up to them and you put a Christian on a pedestal and you go, man, I just wish one day I could attain to how good they are or I could attain to how Christian they are or I could attain to how religious they are or I could, I could, I could attain to those things. Listen, I would say Paul is above them. I don't care who they are, but I, I'm going to say Paul's probably a little bit above them. And I'm going to say, if you understand that, this is going to make a whole lot more sense to you when all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait a minute, the Apostle Paul, he struggles like I struggled? He struggled like I struggled? Listen, listen to what he says. Paul goes, what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. What he's saying here is, my desire is to do right, but I'm, I actually do the action of doing wrong. But my heart is to do the right thing. But my flesh jumps in the way and I end up doing the wrong thing. Who here can identify with that? If your hand didn't go up, you're a liar. Because I do. I, we all do. You want to do the right thing and, oh man, I did the wrong thing. Why? God, I'm so frustrated. I just want to live one day for you. And I did it until 8 o'clock tonight and then, on it. And I blew it. Oh. <coughs> I'm just so disappointed and depressed in myself. All day long I've lived for you, and today and tonight, all of it was for naught. What's the use in trying? I'm frustrated. I'm depressed. I'm struggling in my Christian walk. I can't do this. Can't do it tired of doing this. I'm tired of, of, of trying and trying and trying and I just fall again. I just blow it. There's no way that God could love me like this. I mean, I everybody else can do it, but I can't. If you think that way, if you think that everybody else can do it and you can't, can I just say that's just the enemy going, yeah, look at everybody else. Everybody else is really good. All you've got to do is just get on Facebook for one day and just look at how wonderful everybody else's life is, especially your closest friends that sit there and talk about how wonderful their life is, but then you get a phone call after they've posted that like two minutes ago and, and you talk to them on the phone and their life is in shambles. Oh, this is what's going on in my life. I've got to my boss. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to this and I've got broken up with my boyfriend and this and that. And you just sit there and everything is wrong with their life. But on Facebook, people are looking at their posts and they're going, man, I wish I was as happy as that person. It's a lie. 
we get depressed. What Paul's trying to get to is he's going, man, my flesh is strong. And there's a battle going on between my flesh and the spirit. And here's the thing. The spirit within me, I want to do what's right. And then I blow it. And I am the apostle Paul. Not that he would ever say that because I don't think his, his you know, humility would allow him to go, hey, I am the apostle Paul, look at me. No, he would never do that. In fact, he actually argued against that. Anybody who thinks they are something in Christ, let God judge him. You know? It's neither Paul or Apollos, man. It's God who in- brings the increase. It's not either one of us. You sit there and say, I am of Paul. Or you might sit there and say, I'm of Apollos. Paul says, are you not carnal? Knock it off. Paul says, don't lift a man up. I'm lifting him up because he's one of my heroes. Paul blew it. He would blow it. It's no longer I who do it, he says in verse 7, but it's a sin that dwells in me. And he says in verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Do you know that he puts that little parenthetical statement in there? That is in my flesh. He puts that in there because it would be an erroneous statement if he didn't put that little parenthetical statement in there. I know that in me nothing good dwells. That's an erroneous statement because Christ has come into his heart. The Holy Spirit has taken up residency in his heart. And that is in him, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so here's the thing. He's going, I know that in me, let me, let me clarify that, in my flesh, in my spirit is Christ. But in my flesh, man, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to do the right thing. But how to perform what is good, I blow it. I don't find it. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. This is the Apostle Paul. I don't want to do that stuff. It's evil. And I do it. I dare to say that a lot of you have felt that way in this last week, in this last 24 hours, and maybe even this morning. I am going to church for goodness sakes and why did I just go down that road whether it be something in your mind or whether it be something that was in full on action I shouldn't even go to church today I've blown it too much man why not just get the bang out of my buck and just blow it all the rest of the day you know kind of like the person who eats an Oreo cookie get a bag of cookies you know and already blown it with three of them. Might as well just polish off the bag. You know? Yeah, that kind of resonates with some of us, huh? Yeah, yeah. He says, verse 19, the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that's the stuff I practice, man. Now, if I will, or if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that's dwelling in me. Do you see he's beginning to make a, 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 a differentiation of the spirit and the flesh. He, he says, I know that, uh, that what I will to do, what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, verse 20, but it's the sin that dwells in me. I then find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Uh, does anybody have that, have a New Living Translation here? Meredith, would you read verse 21 and 22? Because I, I read that and it's hard to translate. Here, because listen to what I'm saying here. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I can explain it, but I think that this might explain it even a little bit better. You see what he says? I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. He goes, I love God's word with all my heart. But what was verse 21 again? I've discovered this in my life that when I'm 
love God's word. But when I know what I'm supposed to do is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Again, the Apostle Paul. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. I got to finish, but let me just finish with this. He said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And emphatically in the Greek, this literally says, Wretched man I. He has gotten to the, you see the frustration that's building up in the Apostle Paul. The things that I will to do, those are the things I don't practice. The very things that I will not to do, those are the very things I do. I, I, the evil things that I'm not wanting to do, those are the very things that I practice. Even the things that I, I think I'm going to do right, I inevitably, do, I inevitably do the wrong thing. Oh, wretched man that I am. I am a wretched man. Think Paul ever felt depressed? Think Paul ever got discouraged in his Christian walk? You think Paul hasn't felt like you have felt and like I have felt in our Christian walk when we want to do what's right and yet we slip and we fall and and the enemy takes occasion in us to then take that opportunity to drive our nose into the ground and just keep it there and smash us in to a point where we just sit there and go, what's the use of trying to live this Christian life? What's the use? I can't do it. I cannot do this. I can't do it. And there are teachers out there that will preach that this is a one-time occurrence in Paul's life. And I say an unabashedly hogwash. That's Greek for baloney. Listen, this is something that Paul dealt with his whole life. And gang, this is something you're going to deal with for your whole life. Does it mean that we should go sin? That grace would abound? No, of course not. It just means that we have to understand that we've got a battle going on in our life. We have the flesh and we have the spirit. We have what to do is right. We have what to do. And our flesh is always screaming to do what's wrong. What paint? I want to touch it. There's something in that box. I'm going to be the first one to get in the box after the thing. I'm going to look in that box. Because he doesn't want me to look in the box. I'm going to do it. Now, out of all of you guys, there's probably only two people in this room that's sitting here going, yeah, nobody else will be able to look in that box, but I've got a key to this building. Brett has a key. Jeremy has a key. They're just going to find something stupid in that box. Just take your curiosity away. Here, it, it, just, it just says, it says this. sinner you're just a sinner you did something that you weren't supposed to do yep and you sit there and here's what would happen man i shouldn't have done it he told me not to do it and i did it anyways and i am a sinner our flesh is powerful gang but the spirit is more powerful paul reaches the crescendo in his life he's going man i can't I don't know if I can handle this anymore. Wretched man, I, I am so over this. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a reference to an old style custom of execution back in that day. If you murdered a person under certain circumstances, the Roman government would then take that murdered body that you murdered throw you in a jail cell, strip you of your clothes, strip the person that you killed of their clothes and tie your wrist to their wrist, your torso to their torso, your legs to their legs and off you would, as they decompose, their flesh would assimilate into yours and you would die a very slow and agonizing death. When you moved your left leg, they moved their left leg. When you moved your right leg, that rigor mortis moved. Somebody a few weeks ago from the apartments over here, I'm sure, put a uh, uh, a tray that chicken breasts had come on from Sam's, probably 14 chicken breasts and all the blood that got into the, you know, the thing that seeps up all the blood, threw it in our trash can out here. And I opened it up, and I, I don't want to gross everybody out, but it had little living things all over it, and it stunk so bad. 
I mean, it's just you can't get rid of that smell. Paul's saying, I am strapped to this stinky, wormy, smelly body of death, and there is no rescue. He says, I'm stuck to this thing. Who will deliver me? He doesn't say, I will deliver me. I can do it. I can do it. I can muster my own strength. I can muster my own oomph. I can do this. You know, I saw a, 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 a little thing, uh, you know, this week. Somebody posted a little thing. The difference between triumph and, and try and triumph. Some of you guys probably saw the same thing. Yeah, cause you're on my, a lot of you guys are on Facebook with me. But, you know, somebody wrote, the difference between try and triumph is a little oomph. Right? You see what happened there? Try and triumph, a little oomph. And so sometimes that's how we feel. If I just give it a little bit more effort, I won't do it. If I just give it a little bit more effort, I can overcome all things in my own effort. And Paul's saying, no, it's not me. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death that thinks that it can do things on its own? He says, it's impossible. He answers the question in verse 25. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He sets me free. He cuts the bands of this body of death that is attached to me. He's the one that sets me free. He's the one that reconciles me to his father. He's the one that has come in and done this miraculous, and it is a miraculous work, gang, a miraculous work in my life. I don't no longer have to be depressed. Doesn't mean that I should continue in sin, that grace would abound, absolutely not. But it must understand that I have a war going on in my life. And through Christ, not through dawn, through Christ, I can overcome this. You can overcome all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can do it through Christ, not through you. A little umph, a little bit more trying, is not going to produce triumph in you. You know what produces triumph in you? It's dying to you and living for him. You've got to die to you. It's for that reason that God set that perfect law up is to show you you can't get to heaven. You've got to die. You've got to die. It can only happen through me. It's the only way. It's the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Gang, it's God's plan for you. It's his escape route for us who are sinners. It's through Jesus Christ. It's not through my efforts. Bible is very clear on that. The Bible does not say that our works will get us into heaven. The Bible actually says, we know it, don't we? You can say it with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And none of you guys are saying it with me. You guys should be saying this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not a result of your works. It's a result of what God has done for you. And so live free in Jesus. And I close with that. Live free in Jesus. It's the reason he sent his son, why God sent his son to, to, to die for you on the cross. Is to set you free from thinking that you can do the law. You can't. But if you die to you and live for Christ, you can do all things. Every day is a brand new day, gang. Every sin is an opportunity for communication with the Lord. Don't let the enemy rob another day from you. When you blow it, run to Jesus. When you blow it, run to Jesus, man. That's what he's there for. He's there to pick you up. He's there to forgive you. He's there to restore you. He's there to see you through. But man, if you sit there and hold on to it, Paul will talk about that, not next week, but in the next few weeks as I move my way through Romans chapter 8. That'll take me probably about three weeks to get through and through. And so in three weeks, my third message on Romans 8, we'll talk about that. You don't even have a right to sit there and say, I'm bringing a charge against me. No. You've been bought with a price. It's Christ. You now belong to the Lord. Live for him, man. And there's the freedom that we have in Christ. I don't have to walk around with my lip, you know, hitting my kneecaps because I got this depressed mode going on. 
We understand Paul struggled with things, but here's the thing. He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ. I'm living through Jesus Christ. Next week, verse 1, you want to have a little homework, go home and just read verse 1 and just just sit and dwell on verse 1 of chapter 8. Especially in light of this. I entitled this message, The Romans 7 Loop. You know why? Because there's a lot of people that never get out of Romans 7. They sit there and they're depressed their whole Christian life. I'm never going to be able to do it. I'm never going to be able to shut up and just get up and walk with Jesus. Come on. Get up. You didn't save you. He did. Now walk for him. Walk with him. Trust him. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. But I'm just, just too powerful. Stop it. You died. Your life is hidden in Christ. But my flesh is so strong. Get Kill it. I don't mean take a knife out and do anything to your body. But I'm saying just figuratively, man, it ain't about you. And if you literally have to go in front of a mirror and do this, then you need to do this. Get in front of a mirror when you're in that place where you're going, man, it's, I'm gonna about to sin. Get in front of a mirror and say, hey, man, it ain't about you. You looking at me? Yeah, I'm looking at you. It ain't about you. You look at that mirror, it's not about you. But I like it. This is really weird because I'm talking to myself, but it isn't about you, Don. It's about Christ. Life is no longer about you. It's about Christ. What does Christ want to do in your life? Well, right now, I think he wants to do... I think I want to do... No, Don, die. Live for Christ. Live for Christ today. You know what? You're right. Man, I'm going to live for the Lord today, man. I'm going to live for Jesus. It's a day-by-day process. Paul struggled with it. but he over, he, Did he ever overcome it all? It probably got easier as time went on in his life because he learned, man, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to give myself back to the Lord on those times when the flesh becomes so strong. Give your heart to the Lord, man, and walk free with a smile on your face. Because if you're walking around depressed because of all the struggles that you go through in life, I'm sure everybody wants to become a Christian just like you. That isn't true. That was sarcasm. Live for Jesus, man. Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. And Lord, I pray that I did this passage justice for you, Lord. I pray that this made some sense to us. Lord, it is all about you and all completely about you. And Lord, our flesh will jump in the way at any chance we give it. And that flesh of ours is sneaky, as is the enemy. It loves to take us down and keep us down. But Lord, today you showed us that even the Apostle Paul struggled with sin. Man, Lord, he even struggled with lust. doesn't mean that I should struggle with it and I should still walk in it or anything like that, but it just means that he found a freedom in you not to continue to do those things, but to run to you in those times and you would see him through. Lord, we know that your word tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation has overtaken me such as is common to any, any person but that, God, you will make a way of escape for us, that we'd be able to bear it. And so, Lord, I pray that the times that we begin to, our flesh becomes strong, that, Lord, you run us back to you, you turn our eyes and focus our eyes on you. And that our flesh would not overcome the spirit, but that our spirit would begin to win the battles. That, Lord, we would see ourselves more victorious in you in a day, on a day-by-day basis because, Lord, that's what you're here for. You're here, you, you saved us and now you're going to teach us to walk and you're going to be with us every step of the way. And it will be to your pleasure to enable us and empower us to overcome those obstacles that have been in our life that have drug us down for so many years. And, Lord, when we fail... Help us to run back to you quickly so that we don't drag our lips on the ground and be depressed, our knuckles on the ground, just walking around depressed, hunched over shoulders. But Lord, that we would get beyond it and we'd get beyond it quick so that we could rightly represent you to the next person that we see face to face. In short, Lord, may we all live a life in such a way that people see you, Jesus, through us. Your love, your grace, your mercy, your compassion. 
when we slip and fall, may we run to you. Seek forgiveness and restoration immediately and then get right back up and start walking with you again. God, we love you. We believe, Lord, that you can see us through this life. I pray, God, that if anyone has struggled with these chains and bondage that are tying them down as a Christian, that, Lord, today would have been the day that you just broke those chains. You set them free. That they have a freedom to now walk in you. They know that they walk with you on a day-by-day basis and they have you at all times to run to to see them through every pit and obstacle that may come their way. Our way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.